Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My name is Ethan Delves, and I'm delighted to serve as your guest host today as Josh and I reflect on this past season. Josh, it seems to me that this season uh, three was one of the best yet. So how are you feeling about wrapping this one up? Man, I love season three. This was so much fun. Uh, I, I met a lot of really interesting people and got to have some great conversations. And I think somehow in a weird way, the purpose of the show is actually a little bit more clear to me and I hope to our audience. Uh, we got to play with some interesting ideas and I, I toyed a little bit with some marketing stuff. And I, I learned that if you, the more narrowly you define your audience on a Facebook ad, the more people it actually drums up. I also learned that um, not everyone loves Facebook ads. We got uh, cussed out a couple of times just for having ads. No um, way. Yeah, I, I had I read a couple of ads that just nobody commented on, and then I came back and like, whoa, there are quite some interesting memes that are being dropped in the comments of this ad, and there we go. So you know, it's it's the internet. People I'm sure do- that boosts your engagement. That probably helps you. You know, is it more interaction that puts your ad on a, on a higher priority? I, I would like to think so, but I know Facebook changed a lot of their algorithms. So they don't quite do it that same way anymore, but that used to be the case. Wow. So we'll see. Yeah, I saw that you covered a lot of ground this season. Um, you covered topics like family life, uh, the children's rights movement, leadership, classical education, and even real estate. So um, I suppose we should probably start with the obvious. Do you have a favorite episode or a favorite interview from this season? Probably if I had to pick one, uh, I would definitely say the episode with Katie Faust and her, everything she kind of shelled out. It felt like I was talking to a, it felt like I was talking to a debater at the end of a tournament after uh, said debater has like learned all the information, except this is a real life woman who has spent the last 10 years learning all the data there is to learn about how children are actually affected by their parents and how it negatively impacts society when we as a culture really don't prioritize children. And except, and it wasn't a debate, it wasn't something that like, nope, you might be lying to get my vote. No, this is all real information that uh, really does matter. And uh, it really has direct implication for how we live in this country. And she was also just a fascinating guest and had no desire at all to pull any punches when she wanted to make a claim. She made that claim and she made it strongly. It was, mm. it was good. That was, I think, I think Katie Faust was uh, definitely my favorite episode. It's always great when you have a strong personality behind some some seriously intense and uh, um, sort of long lived research too. So I know she has a whole book, right? If you wanted to mention the book one more time as well. Yeah, uh, it's the name of the book and her organization, Them Before Us, and she has another book coming out uh, sometime this year. So. Uh, listeners, uh, the name is Katie Faust. Do check her out. She's uh, she's a fascinating person you need to know and follow. So uh, t- sort of moving on a little bit, I wanted to know um, in from a more personal perspective, what valuable things have you learned as a participant in your own interviews and as a content creator this season that, that sort of is new? Um, probably, oh, that's a really good question. I got to think back think on that one for a second. The... Um, Probably what I learned as as a participant in the interviews uh, was that really just how much I like the the conversation part and really the best episodes are the ones, they they either go one of two ways. Either I forget that I'm recording and we have this plan that I'm trying to get to specific points and it just becomes a conversation 
Um, some episodes were like that. The real estate episode with Ryan Rickman was that way. Um, Katie Faust episode kind of felt like that. Um, other episodes were uh, more, I have the the, diff, the definitive big name person on and nobody's tuning in to listen to me. So my job here is to ask the question, get out of the way. I felt like Mark Bauerlein was that kind of episode. Uh, he was he's an editor for First Things and does uh, had written a book called the uh, the dumbest generation grows up. <laughs> uh, sorry to break it to you, Ethan. I'm I'm in the, uh, the the later part of the dumb no, the early part of the dumbest generation. You're the tail end and uh, uh, so you're like the second dumbest half essentially, just slightly like slightly less dumb. <laughs> do, do you remember a? I don't know if you I don't know why you remember this, but I remember a uh, moment in high school when. I learned that you had not talked to your calculus teacher about how to figure out the thing you needed for homework. You had just immediately YouTubed it and found like three videos teaching the exact same idea. Yeah. And that is the kind of thing Bauerlein is just like going to town on. I mean, he thinks that. What? Yeah, because it's like no one reads anymore. <laughs> and how is talking to your calc teacher reading though? It's an actual human interaction that you're act you're actually going to the person who originally taught the information and can show you how to use it instead of a generic process that we can kind of slap in and like might apply, uh, but it, it's sort of a quick electronic shortcut instead of an actual human interaction is sort of his point. I, I can see that. I would also push back a little bit because I think that teachers teachers in the classroom have one very particular and leaning in the applicable direction of how to teach things, but videos will give you the whole theoretical background for what you learned in the classroom. So I find the supplementary videos pretty helpful because they, I, I find that to fit a class within an, an maybe a 50 minute to an hour and 15 slot, you have to sort of get the students through the mechanics, especially as a mathematical sort of thing of what you're doing. But then the theory is you can, depending on how interested you are in the actual theory and you know mm -hmm. why things work, the supplementary videos I find are pretty helpful for that. No, that may be that may be fair. What was the second half of your question? It, it, oh yeah. <laughs> um, so what have you learned as a content creator? I know you mentioned a little bit about marketing. And anything else? Um, this is really kind of pre something I figured out for an episode I've already recorded for next season. So I won't name the guest, uh, but I did. I got really excited when I read a report uh, by this guest, and I reached out, and he agreed to come on the show, and. I sort of assumed that there was more that he had to say than was in the report. And it, it the, the part that where the conversation got kind of stilted where I was pushing for more and it became apparent pretty quickly. Nope. He put everything he had to say about this topic in the report. So I had to really pivot fast to be like, okay, uh, I'm just going to, uh, let me ask you about this line and I'm going to say the line and I want you to like, say the next four or five lines that come after that line. And it, it sort of, I had to be a little more attentive to like, no, this, this, this guest is thinking differently than I expected. And I just had to, had to adapt to that. Um, other, the other, the only other thing that comes to mind uh, is that once again, I'm incredibly amazed at how gracious people are with helping connections happen and saying yes to random blind emails it says, Hey, I read your thing. Would you like to come on my show and let's talk about it. This sounds really cool. And uh, there are some, I mean, people, there are just some really, I got some great guests lined up for season four. At this point, we're starting to record for season five. And the, uh, I mean, the, the, the names just get cooler and the conversations are just getting more interesting. But they're not folks, I could never afford to actually pay these people to come on my show. I mean, there are folks like, I mean, I, God alone knows how much money Jordan Peterson can charge to go on someone else's show. 
I mean, I'm sure his name alone has got to be a 50,000 listener boost, but I think we're having conversations that are just as good, if not better. And it's, it's all because of the graciousness of people to say, sure, I'll, I'll help your show out. I'll come on your show. That sounds like a fun conversation. I thought it was interesting how you drew a distinction between a, um, some different types of guests. Cause there's, there are those guests. And I remember when we did what's the res together, um, you'd get, you'd secure a big name to come on the podcast. They're an expert in a very clear and niche and specialized field. So people generally want to know the same things from those types of people. They want to ask them the controversial questions and get their take and perhaps hear a little bit of evidence. But then there's those guests that you get on and not necessarily not big name guests, but the ones where right. their research is a bit broader and the, the topic takes more curious and conversational um, leaning. Mm -hmm. And I think those are always the best. Those at least were always my favorite where I, I encountered something unexpected or that wasn't a standard question that you would ask this type of expert. And the conversation sort of takes, like you take on the persona of the curious individual that's discovered somebody interesting, um, almost as if it's on the side of a street in a cafe somewhere. Uh, I, I personally, I, don't, I, I think you might agree that those episodes are at least my favorite and the most fun to record. Those are the kind that I like to listen to and they're the kind I'm trying to get, but uh, maybe kind of like a, I think most teachers are aiming for those kind of moments in the classroom where the student is, where, where everything lines up. The student got plenty of sleep and food and the topic is inherently interesting and the teacher is adequately prepared and the right question gets asked and suddenly it all clicks. And you can prepare for those moments, but you can't really force them to happen. They either right. do or they don't. It's yeah. great to do. I saw, I see like, that's probably why um, Joe Rogan's episodes go to three hours. They start really slow and, you know, with some very simple things, but then they'll yep. get into the weeds of it with something. And it, it's, that's a great, you know, really great conversations. Um, but I, I wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier about, uh, this podcast taking on a more defined path or de defined direction. So um, first of all, do you think that podcasting has the potential to become your primary platform of influence in the future? Or do you think that you, that your writing is going to be sort of like the mainstream content creation and podcasting will still remain on the side? What do you see in terms of that? It's, it's, it's really hard to know. I mean, it's um, there, there, the internet makes in one sense, it makes all kinds of dreams entirely possible. And there are all kinds of podcasts that just for no discernible reason, except for the standards, I mean, regular creation, a clear purpose and interesting host and, and all that. Uh, the things that like, I think everybody who does a podcast is trying to do, some of them just blow up and suddenly they can monetize and they get ads and, uh, and they, um, and they're able to do that a whole other level. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of uh, Matt Walsh there. I, I've started listening to his show pretty regularly and I, I don't know how long he's been doing the podcasting game, but he's got over a million followers on Twitter. I mean, he 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 does anything on the internet, and it he's got people enraged. He's got people clapping. I mean, I I really that that in my mind is what it would take for podcasting to be sort of the primary thing. Because um, at this point, like, I mean, this podcast would need to it would need a it would really need to get huge to to be that. Um, so in my mind, this is still kind of a side thing. This is a this is a way, this is really a way of networking. It's a way of contributing to the conservative intellectual movement and uh, just contributing to the ongoing effort to create a platform for interesting conversation. Uh, I remember several years ago, the husband of a friend I worked with told me that he didn't think there were any serious ideas on the conservative side. 
And I just, my jaw kind of dropped. I started rattling off all of these names that he had never heard of. And I bring that up because I think inside of some circles, it is entirely possible to feel like any conservative intellectual ideas are inside are an echo chamber. Like you can always be running into people talking about free, we need more free speech on the university campus. We need to interpret the constitution in an originalist direction. Uh, we need to have local government and we shouldn't have so many taxes and that sort of thing. But there is this whole broader world of people who really do believe there is a way of life that we need to conserve. And they are doing some fascinating work that at this point, they are by far the minority in the wider space. So I, I really enjoy getting to talk to those people and trying to create a platform that just maybe one of these episodes will take off and trigger the algorithms and boom, we'll have it'll blow up and it will suddenly just help push good ideas out into the world. I've noticed that angle, actually. Um, and now that you bring it up with with recognizing the roots of conservatism a little bit more it's very difficult in the internet because everything's so front-facing and um you know there are certain things that get clicks and certain things that don't but um i what came to mind was that daily wire project that jordan peterson and i think dennis prager and a few others are working on um the exodus film or the mm -hmm. exodus documentary with sort of exploring the tradition there and some of the ideas in exodus and i i think it's interesting how some of these some of these roots from the tradition are making it out into the public sphere and in the in the form of content that's a little bit more long form like a documentary or maybe a series an episodic series to try to cover some deeper ground but i think there's definitely progress being made um in, in all sorts of areas across the spectrum in terms of sort of trying to articulate where the roots of these ideas are coming from and and finding ways to make that as palpable to the public and to the um the fleeting eye i suppose as yeah. any of any of the things people are already tired of hearing so it'll be interesting to see how people interact with things of that nature because i think they're definitely on the on the uptrend there there's a sense in which that's true i mean i think uh both the daily wire and uh prager U have proved it's possible to have uh conservative media companies there there is a market for that uh where it becomes tricky is that as soon as you are kind of landing in that space you start getting all kinds of infighting about what really are the grounds and what, what are the grounds of these ideas. I mean, that's where I think um, I know we talked about Jordan Peterson. I don't know how, how often over the years, uh, but he's a fascinating figure because he really likes talking about the Bible, but he's not a Christian and he doesn't read the Bible like any Jewish or Christian theologian ever would. He reads it as a psychologist. And so he's, he's I would put him as like adjacent to conservatism. But he's really he's he he doesn't eat, breathe or sleep conservative ideas. He he's a psychologist who has a lot of great truths for practical living, and he really wants to be able to dig into these older sources. But he's bringing that different mentality to them. But man, does that strike a chord with the masses? I mean, so right. at, at yeah. what point at what point is the goal uh, to have rich ideas that are sound and valid and carefully worked out? Or do you compromise on some of that for to increase reach? And and where is the tension there? Like there there are groups trying to do that. And even still, I mean, if you compare Well, we run a good just a good street. Yeah, let me just let me back up and try that one again and Madison can resolve all this. Thanks, Madison. Uh, yeah, she's amazing. 
Uh, and she should definitely keep those those comments in if possible. I think there's something significant in the fact that the Daily Wire and PragerU have proven that there is a market for mainstream conservative media companies. But even then, their reach is so small when you compare them to the giants. I mean, think about Paramount as a movie production company or Disney as a uh, child indoctrination content creation company. Uh, they're just, it's, it's still small potatoes. But it's proof that there is something there that an awful lot of people are looking for. Like they want good content. They want good ideas. And uh, I, I at least like to think that my show is a small part of contributing to those good ideas, getting to people who otherwise might not think about. Them. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for even with all of that, those internal tensions, um, maybe between Peterson's approach to the Bible, for example, or um, or Ben Shapiro being Jewish and then a couple of his contemporaries being Christian. I think that there's definitely something to be said for the whatever overlaps between them then holds the media I suppose the media company or really their friendship, if that's what you could call it together. Um, it really adds strength to the audience and adds strength to their draw because while Peterson is really good at drawing a crowd, he may not, I mean, there may be eternal tensions with how between him and his colleagues, but it's enough to keep them together to, oh, to yeah. make something happen and um, introduce ideas in a way where the consumer can take them with a grain of salt because they, I know they do a panel sort of approach and they mm -hmm. very much disagree on this panel as well. So it's, and it's nice to have a window into that too. Because then you not only get a sense of what the ideas are, but where the main points of contention are. And mm -hmm. then you get an idea of what camps exist. And that's just really helpful. That's about if you could call it a little more logistical, but do you plan on changing or improving anything for season four? Or are there any sort of uh, internal evolutions that are going on with the podcast? Uh, honestly, not not really. I, I think I'm pretty happy with the format we've got with um, primarily looking at a single guest interview show. Um, I have thought about, I, ha I haven't put anything together, so I don't know if this would happen in season four. This might be a season five thing. Uh, but we do have, I do have uh, probably three or four guests I've interviewed on economic themes. We're up to four to five people on classical education themes. Um, I think it would be really interesting to gather sort of a, a panel and host a different style that's like, Let's all from our slightly different angles, we're all thinking about classical education and where this renewal movement is going. It could be really interesting to bring Shane Trotter, uh, Mark Bauerlein and uh, Robert Pondicio, just to name three folks, bring those three together and facilitate a conversation about where do you see school choice, public school, classical ed, where do you see all of that going in the next 10 years? Um, that really could be a, an interesting kind of episode but I don't have any concrete plans to, to change that. Um, right now, what's, what's really kind of coming up is there's part of me that would like to have a more, uh, a, a much more clear plan of where this thing goes, but it's very, it is a bit sort of haphazard. It's a matter of seeing interesting things that seem <clears throat> like they fit with at least one of the pillars of the show and then reaching out to that person, that person says yes, and, and, and so forth. Um, I do have one, uh, there's a British feminist named uh, Mary Harrington that uh, she has a book coming out this summer that that's a possibility. I might have her on the on the show. She wrote a great essay on the website Unheard uh, about the way that uh, modern feminism is actually harming women and uh, really harming children in some really profound ways. And she's saying that as somebody who has full card carrying feminist credentials. 
She's not over here sort of, I, I obviously don't have very, any of those real credentials. I don't, I don't fit in that space. But I think it's really interesting that modern feminism has a lot of women who are really trying to turn back some of the third wave feminism uh, turns that have taken place in the last 15, 20 years or so. And, and really doing it with the well-being of women and children uh, at the heart of this. So I'm, I'm, I'd, like, I, I'd like to have more of those kinds of conversations with people who are sort of in the, the thick of it. In uh, even if they're, uh, I suspect we might have a few, we might have, I'd like to have some more guests in the near future who are perhaps a little bit less, people who would think of themselves less quickly as conservative but definitely are pushing back against some of the excesses of their own political space. Um, there was a, I just subscribed to a new Substack author that I really like, and she kind of fits in that mold where uh, she can, she's a Canadian, she was raised, she's Canadian, she was raised Marxist, and uh, she since rejected the left. That doesn't mean she's embraced the right politically, but she's so frustrated with where the left has gone in its progressive extremes that she can't be there intellectually anymore. Like those kinds of conversations might be a few more of what we start to incorporate as, as the show grows. Yeah, I was gonna say like, it's interesting what direction the show is taken. And I think that it's best conceptualized in terms of how listeners approach podcasts. A lot of listeners will look up a topic specific podcast though, maybe like, um, I know there's a couple economics ones that people listen to in the major over here. and. Um, or even the political podcast or philosophy podcast. But I think that your podcast has a very distinct type of personality where you're, you're an educated conservative that engages with different branches of what that tradition means, whether, I mean, there, there are conservative approaches to everything, whether it's economics or fiscal policy or, um, or for sort of like familial discussions in the family unit uh, on a political level or on a philosophical level even. So I think that it's it's interesting how your your podcast is breaking into a space of um, curiosity in a lot of different areas, but there is still very much something central to the podcast, and it has something to do with being um, an educated conservative, but also that's living everyday life and curious about all these different topics and how to sort of piece together um, how to live uh, life according to the to the tradition or to a conservative tradition in such a a modern world with all of these crazy things happening. And I, I think it, may, it might be something akin to that. And perhaps the definition will narrow or become more crystallized as the seasons go on. But I think there's definitely a market for that. And and you've tapped into that pretty well. I think a lot of your listeners, they don't come back because um, only for the episodes about real estate or only for the episodes about family or only for the episodes about politics, you're building a fan base. You're building a community where these people generally have the same um in, in they, they have the same intentions for their life and their, their life path, but that involves interacting with a lot of different spaces, some of which people have more expertise in than others, but all of your guests can come together and give and, and contribute to that picture. I think there's a lot to that. I think um, when I'm thinking back over this season, we honestly, um, give shout outs probably to uh, two different people. Uh, one, uh, so a friend of mine, uh, Clifford Humphrey, who now works for Troy University, he really encouraged me to go down to a uh, conference he was connected with the uh, National National Conservatism Group with, um, uh, they're run by the Edmund Burke Foundation under uh, Dr. Yoram Hazoni. And man, Ethan, that was a, I found that a really helpful conference uh, in part because it had been a long time since I was around a bunch of people who uh, were openly advocating for conservative ideas 
and encouraging each other to be pretty blunt and bold about the fact that um, conservatism does make truth claims and Christianity makes truth claims. And if we think those things are both true, then they do have direct political implications. And we shouldn't apologize for that. I don't know if you see this in um, in your space at Chapel Hill, but um, I, I was kind of convicted by what they were saying because I was thinking about like how I would approach controversial topics with colleagues and coworkers and even even at times students. And I think this is a lot trickier with students because you've got that that power dynamic of teacher and student that you don't want to get. But I would almost sort of approach a topic I thought of as controversial was sort of being deferent to deferring to the liberal position, almost sort of apologizing that like there is a conservative view on, for example, uh, border control and and thinking that borders are essential to the nation. And if we are really lax on border control, we're actually being really lax on rule of law and we are actually harming our own citizens. And but it's one thing to approach that conversation saying like, no, this is a problem and you need to understand that this is a problem. And it's another thing to be like, well, I understand that you believe blah, 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 blah. And I sort of do a better job articulating the liberal position than most liberals I've actually talked to and then bring in my own view. And the NatCon folks were just kind of like, nope, it's time that conservatives stand up and be honest about what they believe and actually articulate a positive vision for life, for policy, for education, for all these different areas. I came back from that conference just, well, one, really- Refreshed, probably, right? Yeah. yeah. I also really, I had a ton of business cards that became a bunch of people in this season and next season. That's amazing. <laughs> and That's really wonderful. I, it just really- I don't know, the, the, the stronger the divide, the partisan divide is in, in America, the more it seems like um, uh, we ought to just recognize that and kind of stop apologizing for it. And that that definitely shaped some of the tenor of the season as well, I think, and made that a bit more pointed. That's, that's awesome, yeah. It's so refreshing to be around a group of like-minded peers and nothing really beats it at all. Um, I think a lot of that tension comes uh, from sort of like an asymmetrical or progress is asymmetrical. So the liberals always have grounds to say, oh, the conservatives are just, you know, sitting on their tails or they don't want to do anything about this problem. But, you know, it's, it's, it, I guess there's kind of like a temporal bias in that somehow is that we're like hindering progress going forward. But again, that's, that's a huge political thing. And there's everyone else is out there to resolve that, not me on this episode. And, um, but I, it, I, I'm glad you got to attend that conference. It, it's always refreshing to do something like that. So it, it sounds like a lot of great interviews are going to come out of it too, which we're very excited for. Um, so the, I guess the last thing is I wanted to ask if you could have any guests on your show, who would it be? And I'm going to take a guess here and say that it'd be Matt Walsh. Could be wrong, but I still think you should reach out to him and you know try to have a conversation of some sort because we're ambitious over at the Optimistic oh, Imagine. Um, but, yeah. should at least uh, they they should at least send us some people because I think we've mentioned their their name on this show about twenty times at this point. Um, if I could interview Matt Walsh, I would want to have a long conversation about his uh, his book and documentary What Is a Woman. Um, I I don't know that Matt Walsh would be the guy I would want to interview. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it in part depends on what we're interviewing about. Um, if I'm interviewing about, uh, I mean, I would love to, I would be thrilled to do a conversation with Dr. David Whalen of Hills. He's, uh, he's, I forget if he's, he used to be provost at Hillsdale college, but he's now, um, I think he's stepping out of administration and back into teaching, 
But I'd love to have him on the show to talk about the nature of liberal arts and liberal education and why uh, we actually have gotten so much wrong because we've moved away from actual liberal education. Uh, I think that would be fascinating. Um, there are, I've, I've actually, I, I don't know who this person is, but uh, I'm really fascinated by the recent Scottish gender affirming legislation. I don't know if you followed, have you followed any of this story? I haven't, no. Uh, Scotland just passed legislation to allow prisoners to be jailed according to the sex they define themselves as, uh, which has created quite a bit of uproar. Um, there have already been, uh, there's at least one case in the United States of a man who identifies as a woman being jailed in a women's prison and then having to be moved because he raped women in prison, which is what everybody thought oh might God. happen, and it, that's exactly what happened. Uh, but so there's it's it's this really interesting intersection of uh, so there are I mean, Scotland's had a ton of feminist work in the last few decades. Uh, J.K. Rowling has been pretty vocal uh, in that in that discussion. Uh, but now the but of course anything related to transgender stuff has this whole army of activists who claim that uh, you are being unjust if you force people to actually live according to their biology. So I would love to have somebody who like knows the ins and outs of that and could have a conversation about that. I haven't figured out who that is yet. Um, if I'm talking about uh, classical education, I would be really, I, I have intended, I need to reach out. I'd love to interview Jeremy Tate at some point with the classic learning test. He's a great guy. Uh, definitely a strong friend to Thales Academy. Um, uh, by the time this drops, I don't think this will be out yet, but uh, I'm actually on the Anchored podcast at some point in the, in the coming months. I interviewed, I did that a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's there's a lot of other folks. Um, I'm about to go in just a couple of weeks. I'm going to uh, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute's conference on uh, America. They're doing a, they're calling it the American Political Government Summit. And that's down in Fort Lauderdale. And I'm on the lookout for anybody interesting that uh, is doing interesting stuff. Uh, and that's, uh, ISI is a great organization. Uh, they're run by uh, Johnny Bertka, another Hillsdale grad. Uh, he and I were the same year. Uh, he, he went a different route than I did. Uh, he went the think tank, inner city DC or inner DC connections route. Anyway, um, ISI has done a lot of work with undergrads uh, at colleges all around the country. But they're now focusing as uh, trying to focus a bit more on graduate students and professors to help combat some of uh, just leftist indoctrinatory kind of things. And so I think that will be a fascinating place to meet interesting people and figure out new new guests for coming seasons. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to see how the direction of the podcast progresses as we go through additional seasons. I think this has been a great uh, season finale. So I think that's probably all we have time for today. Uh, thank you for having me as your co-host. I love coming on to do one episode uh, at the end of each season. So I appreciate you having me to host this episode. Um, thank you everyone for tuning into the season finale episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Um, Josh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to all the great work you're going to accomplish in season four. All right. Thanks, Ethan. So glad to see you again. And uh, always great to get together over this podcast. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. 
This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.